You are listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan regional government representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Alex Epser. This is the third episode of the podcast, which explores the rich relationship between the United States and the Kurdistan region of Iraq. This week, the focus is on the coronavirus outbreak and on the ongoing humanitarian response to assist the one million people who remain displaced in the Kurdistan region. And for that, I've interviewed Zach Bazzi, a good friend of mine, and also the regional director of the Middle East and Central Asia for the organization Spirit of America. He's been working in Kurdistan for many years, and I'm excited to bring you that interview. But first, let's take a quick look at what's been happening in Kurdistan. March and April are always busy months for Kurdistan. In the past few weeks, Assyrians have celebrated their new year, known as Akidu. Yazidis celebrated their new year, known as Char Seri Sal. And Christians celebrated Easter. Of course, it was also Kurdish New Year, Nowruz, which is related to Nowruz, which is celebrated by the Persians and other people around the Middle East and Central Asia. These are always very festive days with dancing, picnicking, and of course, jumping over fires, which is one of my favorite parts. So, Happy New Year to all who celebrated recently. Unfortunately, as you may imagine, this year all the major celebrations were canceled because of the coronavirus. KRG has been taking strong measures to mitigate the spread of the infection, including a total lockdown. As of April 20th, as I'm recording this, there have been 337 confirmed cases and four deaths. It looks like the cases are leveling off, and there is some talk about slowly lifting some of the restrictions. But it's still a very fragile situation, especially with the high infection rate in Iran and the number of infections in Turkey increasing rapidly. If you've ever been to Kurdistan in March and April, you can imagine how difficult it is for families who are stuck inside. This is picnic season. The grass is green and lush. The weather is not too hot. It's in this season that I like to use my favorite Kurdish word, which is finik which is used to describe the weather, meaning pleasant and cool. I know everyone is aching to get out and picnic, but it's been really encouraging to see that people in Kurdistan are taking the lockdown and the health guidelines seriously. KRG has set up an information portal in English, Kurdish, and Arabic. For more information about the coronavirus outbreak in Kurdistan, visit gov.krd slash coronavirus en. Here in the U.S., it was Census Day on April 1st. The census is held every 10 years. Every person living in the U.S. is required by law to respond to the census, which is used by the federal government to allocate resources for the next decade. This census was the first time that there was an option to write in your heritage, which creates an opportunity to have the first official counting of the number of people of Kurdistani origin here in the United States. A number of Kurdish-American communities around the U.S. produced instructional videos and help seminars in English and in Kurdish to show people how they could complete the census. And it was really great to see these Kurdish organizations and activists getting out there to educate the public. Although things are certainly slower in Kurdistan these days with the coronavirus outbreak, KRG and U.S. leaders have been using technology to remain engaged with each other. KRG representative to the U.S., Bayan Sami Abdurrahman, has been holding meetings with the State Department, White House, and Department of Energy officials, and was recently on a call with the political directors of the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. Prime Minister Masrur Barzani and Deputy Prime Minister Kubad Talabani have both chaired cabinet meetings over video conference, 
Prime Minister Barzani has been video calling health workers and Peshmerga soldiers, and he actually held a phone call with the new Deputy Assistant Secretary for Iraq, David Copley. And finally, Iraq has a new nominee for Prime Minister, Mustafa al-Kadhimi. Al-Kadhimi is Iraq's former intelligence chief and is close with the U.S. Prime Minister Barzani called al-Kadhimi to show his support, and it seems that people are hopeful that al-Kadhimi will be able to form a government. Let's hope since Iraq is going through a difficult time with coronavirus and the collapse in oil prices, and there has only been a caretaker government there since late 2019. After I moved to D.C. in late 2013, one of the first people I met who knew anything about Kurdistan was Zach Bazzi, and in full disclosure, we have been good friends since. He had served in the U.S. Army during Operation Iraqi Freedom and had been to the Kurdistan region during that time, a story that he recounts in this interview. Only a few months after we met, Zach helped found an organization called Tent Ed, which provides educational supplies to displaced kids. They have focused much of their work in Kurdistan. In 2015 and 2016, when the situation was especially dire, Zach was zigzagging Kurdistan region for Tent Ed, buying backpacks for kids, paying bus drivers to pick up refugee and IDP students when the UN failed to do so, and even paying teachers' salaries. Truly impactful work. Since then, he's continued his humanitarian work with the NGO Spirit of America, where he is currently the organization's regional director for the Middle East and Central Asia. He still regularly works in Kurdistan. And recently, Spirit of America delivered critical medical supplies to protect Peshmerga forces during the coronavirus outbreak. Few people know Kurdistan like Zach does. And so when he got unexpectedly stuck in the D.C. area because of the coronavirus, I jumped at the opportunity to get him on the podcast. We recorded this interview in my apartment in D.C. while practicing judicious social distancing. Well, thank you for coming out, Zach. Uh, really appreciate you making the trip and taking the time to speak with me. It's good to be here. It's also good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, it's a little different for the first time when I saw you not being able to give each other a handshake or a hug. I know. Here we are sitting at a CDC-approved distance. Indeed we are. But it is good to see you from six feet away. Likewise. So, you both individually and through your organization, Spirit of America, have been working in Kurdistan for, for many years. What are some of the biggest uh, or most important projects that you've worked on? Well, over the last four and a half so years leading our work in the Middle East and Central Asia, I've had the pleasure, to be honest with you, to be involved in numerous projects to support Iraq, but also specifically Iraqi Kurdistan and the people there in a variety of ways, whether it's helping out the Peshmerga, but then also helping develop civil society uh, and social cohesion across the region. And then before that, I was doing work through an NGO I had started called TenEd to help support and improve education for uh, children displaced by conflict. With respect to Spirit America, a lot of my work has rightly centered on uh, helping the Peshmerga defend their country against extremism, and then promote security, stability, uh, and region to help maintain Iraqi Kurdistan as that island of stability that many people know it to be. Uh, it's also the reason why so many people travel to Iraqi Kurdistan seeking refuge from the violence and instability all around them. And thirdly, I'd say it's the reason why people like me feel comfortable going there back, uh, going there again and again, because it is stable and the people are welcoming. What is Spirit of America, and how is it different from other humanitarian organizations? 
It's a great question. So we're a completely privately funded non-governmental organization, and we work closely with de deployed U.S. personnel, whether it's troops or diplomats, to design, implement various types of economic, humanitarian, and assistance projects all around the world. I lead our work in the Middle East and Central Asia footprint, so I focus on that particular geography. So a lot of our work uh, is, uh, if you look at it, face value, it's humanitarian and helps the mission of U.S. personnel, but also helps to a large degree their partners and allies around the world. I think the difference is just the degree of collaboration that we have with the U.S. military and embassies and consulates around the world. Uh, in that regard, and we're very open about this, we're not neutral. We are uh, siding with the U.S. and their partners and allies all around the world. And our work is dedicated to ensuring that those partners and allies are as strong as they can be. Because when they're stronger, we as Americans are stronger, more safe, more secure. As, as somebody who is up close uh, on a daily basis with the humanitarian crisis in Kurdistan, I was hoping that you could characterize the role that U.S. humanitarian and governmental organizations play in providing aid to refugees and internally displaced people who are seeking refuge in Kurdistan. In short, they play a huge role. The, the, the funding, the capacity, the know-how that they bring to the table is hard to match. But it's also important to note that they work closely with the governance structures, uh, governance structures of Iraq and then also of Iraqi Kurdistan. So I think it's this partnership, this collaboration that allows the international committee in partnership with local actors to meet this unprecedented challenge. I think without this kind of collaborative spirit, it would not work. So the international aid organizations, the UN, small NGOs, governments, they bring their capacities and talents and know-how to the table. And when that's mixed with locals, after all, it is their country, uh, then you can achieve a cohesive re response that meets the demands of the moment. What are, what are some of the projects that you've worked on with Spirit of America supporting Kurdistan and the people of Kurdistan? Well, I, uh, I've probably, I think if I count them, it's 50 or 60 projects up to this point in, in, that, re in that specific region. Um, quite a few, yeah. And I'm very proud of that track record, you know the work that we do for Iraq, Iraqi people, and the people of Iraqi, Kurdistan, of course. I've done quite a few over the years education-related projects. Those are near and dear to my heart because, uh, you know, as somebody born in the Middle East, I know firsthand the value of education. Without education, you can't reach enlightenment. Without enlightenment, you're never going to reach uh, some sort of state of moderation or advancement. So um, those projects are dearly important to me, and it's ones that I place a high premium on and that I prioritize, uh, but also uh, having spent a lot of my life in uniform serving my country here in the U.S. and abroad. I know I appreciate security. Without security, nothing else happens. So we go to a great extent to support uh, the, the Ministry of Peshmerga and the Peshmerga partners because without them, you will not have stability in that region. And I would also argue that, look, the Kurds in particular, uh, if you look at the Middle East as a whole, have been America's friends and partners for generations now. And they've been with us when we needed them the most, whether during the surge in Iraq or even in the fight against ISIS. As you know, over 1,200 uh, Kurdish Peshmerga made the ultimate sacrifice in the fight against ISIS, and also tens of thousands were injured. So without their contributions, that fight would have taken a lot longer 
and it would have caused a lot more American casualties. And that's something that's always on the forefront of my mind when I think about the Peshmerga and the Kurds. I also understand other members of that coalition have made sacrifices as well. So that's not lost on me or our staff. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to the Peshmerga, there's that additional impulse to to to, to want to do more. So we over the years, we provided probably now thousands of individual first aid kits, all sorts of material aid for the Peshmerga, whether it's compasses or GPSs or backpacks jackets, winter jackets, things of that nature that allows those soldiers to operate more comfortably in the elements and do their job better, protecting their land and their people from extremism and any other threats. So let's let's turn a little bit to uh, what's in the news, what's on everyone's mind these days is the coronavirus. As you know, Kurdistan's health system has been stretched for years because of the war, the war with ISIS, because of the humanitarian crisis uh, and the economic crash. And so it was really amazing to see that Spirit of America had stepped up to deliver aid to support the Peshmerga who are facing the coronavirus and who are on the front lines of this of this crisis. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how the Peshmerga are handling coronavirus. You know, what are you seeing? What did you send to them? And how did this program, this support come about? As soon as this crisis unfolded, and as somebody who oversees our work uh, throughout the, uh, again, Middle East and Central Asia, I determined that supporting Peshmerga in particular was going to be our top priority. You know, as when I was looking at the budget and I was looking at just different priorities, uh, because the fact is there's a need everywhere, including my native, uh, the country I was born in, Lebanon. When I just looked at it analytically, the Peshmerga, they are partners of ours. You know, there's a saying the Kurds have, we have no friends but the mountains. And that's an, a tragic, it's a born in tragedy, right? Because oftentimes they've been uh, let down by their friends and partners. I wanted to showcase American support for the Peshmerga. And keep in mind, there are a significant number of U.S. troops in Iraqi Kurdistan working with their Peshmerga partners and other security partners. And a lot of the, and, and there's also uh, a lot of the troops there are also providing support for the operations in Syria. So this is a very critical hub for U.S. national security interests. And, you know, I'm, I'm no health expert, but these troops come and are every day interfacing with locals and with the Peshmerga. So it's not one of those things where you can wall yourself off from the risk. So because of there's a, the strategic importance of that region, because there's a significant number of U.S. troops stationed there, and because the Peshmerga have been loyal and steadfast American partners for years, there's a very easy conclusion for me to reach that the lion's share of our organizational resources dedicated towards the Middle East should go towards supporting a Peshmerga partner. So with that in mind, uh, we moved very quickly. I reached out to a friend of mine, Brigadier General Hazar, over at the Ministry of Peshmerga Affairs. My partner in crime in the region, Joshua Brandon, who I work with closely, him and I teamed up on this project. Uh, we also worked uh, rather closely with our colleagues over at the U.S. Consulate in Erbil, especially the Office of Security Cooperation, to make sure all the, you know, we had all the right stakeholders involved in this project. And then, of course, you know, I have a pretty good uh, network of vendors and enablers and local uh, fixers who help us arrange things. So within days, we were able to provide $18,000 worth of disposable masks, surgical aprils, goggles, gloves, uh, disinfectants, hand sanitizers, and so on. That would allow thousands of Peshmerga, thousands and thousands of Peshmerga soldiers do their job more safely, more effectively, especially when it comes to enforcing the restriction measures that were announced by the government. It's just an amazing project that um, 
I know that people, you know, as as the crisis started to unfold, I think there was this question of like, what what is going to happen to all this humanitarian aid? What is going to? How are our partners, especially when America is is just buried under its own crisis? How how are our friends going to help us? And it was amazing to see Spirit of America step up. Let's uh, let's keep talking about uh, coronavirus, but maybe zoom out a little bit. How do you see the coronavirus crisis affecting the broader humanitarian response? So when it comes to uh, humanitarian and development efforts, uh, first and foremost, logistics. You know, I think was it Napoleon who said an army marches on its stomach. So a lot of this stuff, when you boil down to it, you're only as good as your logistics. And right now, even we are as small, you know, as fast moving as we are, we're starting to feel those effects in terms of sourcing personal protective equipment, PPEs, and other types of materials based on the local needs identified to us. So that's going to be a big one. If you know whether it's a UN or a massive international aid NGO or a sl- small one, in order for them to respond, they, and especially if that response is material in nature, like PPEs or health devices or or something like that, or food, food aid is important because. Let's be, you know, there's a lot of, of poverty across the Middle East, and this has become amplified or worsened by the crisis, right? And so it's imperative on the local, on the governments and NGOs to, to provide some of these resources. But it's going to be difficult, especially when those supply chains, whether they run through China or just uh, those factories are closed because people aren't going there. So one, and another one's staffing. So that's uh, point two is staffing. Like if a lot of the staff are staying home, how can these NGOs run? If some of your staff have coronavirus and they have to stay home again, so it's 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 gonna it's ex- extremely difficult to to act to respond in this hour of need, which is when the response is most necessary. And this is, I think, one of this brings a point to my mind. Like this is why I value our methodology at Spirit America. We work by as we you know we say by with and through various local partners. So we work closely with. The U.S. consulate in Arbil. We work closely with the U.S. military in Arbil. We work closely with the Ministry of Peshmerga Affairs and other governmental ministry within the KRG structure. So because we have those partnerships and we can operate by, with, and through them, we're able to to move forward. Uh, So this, you know, to step back a little bit, if there's one big, one lesson for me out of this crisis is partnerships matter. Partnerships count. Partnerships are your method. Without partnerships, Oftentimes, you either cannot operate or you will not be as effective when you operate. So, Zach, you've been working in Kurdistan for a long time. What first brought you there and and what keeps you coming back? Well, what first brought me to Kurdistan was the U.S. Army. I believe it was uh, September, late September, early October 2004. I was serving in Iraq. My company was assigned to LSA Anaconda, basically Balad Air Base, just north of Baghdad. And we were assigned a mission to escort Republic of Korea, rock troops from just south of Baghdad, some link-up point down there, all the way up to uh, this place called Erbil. I remember we get the mission briefing, and it's like, yeah, up there, it's these Kurdish people, and they are very U.S.-friendly. You know, I have not heard much about the Kurdish people at that point, but I was intrigued, the fact that they're very U.S.-friendly, and they had this Peshmerga. And so... It was a very long convoy, and long convoys kind of move very slowly. And we left like very late in the afternoon. I think we made it in Kirkuk around midnight, and I remember we rested there, refueled. And if I remember correctly, we arrived in this place called Erbil, which seemed like a village at the time, like early dawn. 
But one one of my favorite memories from that is when we passed after we left Kirkuk and we about to we started crossing, we began the crossing into Kurdistan region proper. Uh, there's a checkpoint, and I remember some soldier. I think he was. Uh, you know, this is 15 years ago now, right? So bear with me. I think he might have been a special forces guy. He's like, he's looked at us in, the, in that sort of direct, blunt kind of way. Like, you can relax now. And so it was the first time, and and the only time in my entire year in Iraq, where I told my gunner, I was in the, you know, I was a sergeant at the time, and and so you know, I was sitting in the passenger seat. I look over my gun. I told him sit down in the turret and relax. And uh, we had, I guess, Peshmerga mounted. Uh, soldiers, uh, you know, in their trucks providing security for our convoy. It was the one time in my entire year in Iraq where we just relaxed and took it easy and did not, quote unquote, pull security. And I remember that moment to this day. And and that was when this, uh, the the Kurdish people came on my radar along with the Peshmerga and I've held them in high esteem uh, ever since then, because uh, as many Kurds uh, love to say, and as many American soldiers know, no American soldier was ever killed under Kurdish protection hospitality. Mm-hmm. And so for that, the, we owe them gratitude, and they have my eternal gratitude. All right, Zach. In each episode, I try to ask the guests three questions. The first question is, when was the first time that you ever heard about Kurdistan? But you just answered that. So let's go on to the second question. What is a word or a phrase that sums up Kurdistan for you? Resilience. It almost sounds like a cliche when you say that, but let me let me flesh that out. You know, the history has not been kind to the Kurds. Neither has geography. So time and time again throughout their history, uh, they've been attacked and marginalized by people around them. And I know there's two sides to everything, and sometimes it's a bit more nuanced than you know what the headlines are. But this is a people that have had a very tough history. And um, and sometimes, you know, friends and allies have not been there for them when they needed the most. And yet, despite all that, they continue moving on with their life and way of life, embracing their culture, uh, rolling with the punches. They're still there. You're not going to erase them. These are very tough people. And the saying I mentioned earlier, we have no friends but the mountains. That saying is rooted in the tragedy I just outlined. But it's also, to me, it also speaks to their... Their toughness, no friends but the mountains. These people are like those mountains. They're tough, they're resilient, they're sturdy, they're stout, and they're not going anywhere. And I appreciate that. And in a very sort of individual philosophical way, like that's, you know, I'd like to, you know, I would wish I could see myself like that, somebody that tough, that strong, like that mountain. And and just, you know, putting up with the weather, putting up with the elements, putting up with the, with the difficulties, but still standing tall. And I, to be clear, that applies to all the people there. I, that's a point I'll always keep making because one of the things I love about Kurdistan is it's it's cultural diversity. It's diversity in terms of people. Like that's one thing I learned a lot in my last ten years of going there. The Chaldeans, the Assyrians, the Yazidi, Shabak, Kakayi. Here's right? my last question: What's a word or a phrase that sums up America for you? Generosity. Here's why I say that. Um, well, first, the numbers back it up. You know, I was reading, I was at Forbes magazine some time ago. I think either 2016 or 2017, Americans gave like up to, was it $450 billion to charity, individually, collectively. And that doesn't count what our government does. And not all of it, all of that, of course, is just for fellow Americans. A lot of that goes overseas. And, and, and again, that doesn't count what our government 
gives to international institutions such as the United Nations or to major NGOs that help implement various types of USAID or State Department initiatives. Oh. And, and that's just the numbers. But then just my own experience as somebody, as a 40-year-old who's been involved in this kind of work for my entire adult life, is just not enough hard drive out there to store all the anecdotes in the vignettes and all the memories I have of people, Americans, Many of them will never, ever go to an Iraq or Lebanon or Jordan who still donate and who still help because they want to make that the world a better place. They want to help overseas, a place that's really just a place on the map for them. They're never going to go to it, yet they have the presence of mind and the bigness of heart to want to contribute in whatever way they can to make people thousands of miles away, the lives of people thousands of miles away, better. And I uh, would challenge anybody to show me that kind of spirit, with that kind of generosity, to that degree of generosity anywhere else. Well, Zach, thank you so much for taking the time. I want to thank you for your work uh, over the last decade and a half for the people of Iraq, for the people of Kurdistan, people of the Middle East. Uh, Spirit of America is an amazing organization, as is Tent Ed. Um, and we are lucky to have you as an American, and uh, the people of Kurdistan are lucky to have you working on their behalf as well. Well, first, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time. I wish it wasn't under such uh, difficult circumstances. I love what I do. I think it's both a privilege, a pleasure, and a duty, and I feel very fortunate to be in a position in life, in, in a position in life to be able to do the kind of meaningful and purposeful work that I get to do. Uh, it, it's not always like this. I've had other jobs in the past where it's one of those things where you punch in and punch out. So I feel, truly, I feel grateful that I can do this kind of work. And I know, you know, eventually I'll move on to something else and I will be looking back at these years as some of the most uh, fruitful in my life, uh, probably after my military service. That's all for this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it from the comfort of your home. It certainly has been a weird few weeks. Thank you for listening. God bless America and Herbiji Kurdistan. Je